Could be some hard lessons for lawmakers who say they want to fix Texas schools in the upcoming session. We're doing the math and more today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. A state panel is suggesting an overhaul in how public schools are paid for, long an issue of contention in the Lone Star State. We'll hear the latest ideas. Tell us what you think online at Texas Standard. Also, how 3D printers are putting teeth in prison dental care and a claim that after a decade of progress, the rate of uninsured children on the rise. Is that true? The PolitiFact team is on the case. All that and a whole lot more as the standard gets rolling right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this 12th day of December. Happy hump day, y'all. I'm David Brown. Now, most of us are sympathetic, or maybe it's empathetic, when it comes to the mad dash gathering presents around holiday season or getting to the gathering on time. But folks, it's getting a little crazy out there. 175% more crazy, to be precise. There's a new study by the team behind Gas Buddy ranking the top five states for aggressive holiday drivers. Turns out Texas is right behind Georgia and California, perhaps honking its horn. If you're feeling the road rage, it's not just you. Just a reminder to take extra care out there. Give yourself a little extra time if you're traveling about. Forbes out this morning with a new report that Texas leads the nation in people without health insurance. More in the news roundup and a little later in the big broadcast, the PolitiFact team double checks a claim that after 10 years of progress, the uninsured rate for kids back on the rise. Speaking of kids, there's a perennial issue here in the Lone Star State when it comes to their education or more precisely how and how much to pay for it. A series of lawsuits over the years have led frustrated judges to demand that lawmakers fix a broken funding system. Now a state commission tasked with finding some answers has released its recommendations. Julie Chang of the Austin American Statesman's got the story. Hey there, Julie. Hi, good morning. Uh, what are some of the key recommendations released regarding school finance reform? So the Texas Commission on Public School Finance on Tuesday released its draft recommendation. So it's still in the works, but um, we're getting close to the deadline, uh, which is at the end of the month um, for when the commission has to send its recommendation to the legislature. But so far, you're seeing about 29 recommendations, and they range from directing more money towards schools for educating poor children to curbing property tax growth as a means to deliver property tax relief for homeowners. What other uh, uh, suggestions? I mean, this this sounds sort of vague right now because we're talking about spending more for uh, kids who uh, are less affluent, are poor. Uh, what other recommendations are here? So some of the recommendations they have include spending $400 million a year to improve third grade reading proficiency, another $400 million a year to ensure that seniors are graduating without the need for remediation and have also earned a job certification, enrolled in college or enlisted in the military. There's also money for school districts to create a system to pay their most effective teachers higher salaries. There's money for dual language programs, as well as students with dyslexia, educating them. There's also some ideas to 
add 30 instructional days onto school years, as well as to give the option for school districts to implement high quality full day pre-K, which is something that a lot of people, a lot of public education advocates have wanted um, over several years now. But I think the one that's causing the most um, heartburn among public education advocates is Governor Greg Abbott's property tax plan, which would cap the growth of property revenue growth um, at 2.5% every year. And the state would have to come in and and make up for any sort of um, decrease in in expected revenue for the local school district. Uh, I don't see how curbing property tax growth is going to mean more money for schools. What's what's the math there? Well, I think that lawmakers and some of our state leadership are looking for a way to deliver property tax relief since property tax is inextricably tied to public school finance. And yeah, I mean, there's some tension between whether um, delivering property tax relief will mean more money for schools since property tax is the main source of revenue exactly. for funding public schools. Yeah. So who's going to pay for the schools, I guess, is my question. You can talk about increasing funding for uh, educating uh, poor kids and uh, you know all day long, but but uh, is my understanding that the state's been cutting back on its spending for education? Well, the state wants to, according to leadership, um, the state wants to increase its share um, in the coming years. It's just unclear whether the overall pot of money, both local revenue, state resources, federal resources, is going to increase for public schools in Texas. You've been covering this for some time as an education reporter there at the Statesman. Do you see any fixes, I mean, of the of the kind that uh, uh, many people have been calling for over the years? Is this, is this going to be the prescription for what ails education in Texas? I think that fixing the public school finance system is going to be a work in progress. It's going to take several years. I don't know yet if public education advocates see the work coming out of the commission as the final solution to fixing the public education system in Texas. So what happens next? Well, the commission will meet again next Wednesday and um, maybe make some final tweaks, particularly on the portion that addresses property tax relief. And then the commission will expect to have its report to the legislature by December 31st. Julie Chang covers state education for the Austin American Statesman. Julie, thanks again. Thank you. After an investigation by the Houston Chronicle earlier this year detailing how difficult it was for many Texas prisoners to get the dentures they said they needed to regularly eat and speak, a reprieve may be on the way for Texas's toothless inmates who have been denied life-altering dentures by the state. Carrie Blakinger has the story. She covers prisons for the Houston Chronicle. Carrie, welcome to the Texas Standard. Hi, thanks for having me. I believe this was reporting uh, that you did that uh, sort of prompted this change, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what Texas prison officials now say they are willing to do to help out inmates who need dentures. 
Well, a few weeks ago, uh, they said that they were going to change their policies and make dentures more broadly available and that they were going to start a dental clinic. And it wasn't clear exactly sort of the logistics of how that would work out. Um, you know, it's a lot of inmates to transport if you're going to have like one central clinic. And then this week or last week, actually, I found out that they're going to pull this off by 3D printing dentures. Wait, wait, so... wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we got to stop right there. Three using 3D printers to, to print out teeth. Yes, that's a that's a thing. That's a thing that can be done. Um, the military's already been using them. Um, so yeah, there's already been some studies on this. There hasn't been a uh, full clinical trial on on a on a on the full sets of dentures. Although they've done one clinical trial on partials, but this is a technology that's been around for. I mean, from what I'm seeing online, like at least a decade. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's not just some crazy off the wall idea. It's actually being done. It's it's interesting because I think a lot of us associate three D printing with you know the the well the home printers right I mean these are these are sort of small scale uh, devices that cost anywhere from uh, I don't know typically five hundred to a thousand dollars is is it that the cost has gotten to a point where Texas prison officials think that they can do it themselves or are these three uh, D dentures being done professionally at a laboratory or how is this all going to work. So there are, you know, there are, there are companies that specialize in this, and, and TDCJ will end up getting some 3D printers that will be on site at one facility. They haven't picked which facility yet. They'll hire um, one denture specialist and then another two uh, technicians, and they'll be able to print them on site. And it'll, it'll work by having uh, wands at some of the individual units, and then they, like, wand the inmate's mouth to get a scan. Mm-hmm. And... Then they'll send that to the one unit that has a printer and print it out. And in doing it that way, they can avoid all of the expense of inmate transport, you know, which could be substantial if you only have one dentures clinic and, you know, inmates scattered at 104 prisons across the state. Um, so they'll save money there. The actual purchase of the equipment from what officials have told me will probably be between 50000 and a 100000 or, or sorry, that's the cost of starting it up. I don't know if that is only the equipment mm-hmm. or if they're including other stuff there. And uh, then once they've actually got it in place, the, the making of individual sets of dentures is far cheaper than it would be with uh, traditional like old-fashioned dentures. Um, I'm told it would be somewhere around like $50 a set. Carrie, some people might feel like this is a, a rather uh, optional thing to provide uh, to people who are incarcerated. Uh, what are the arguments there? Well, whatever you think of whether it's necessary to have teeth during incarceration, I think at the very least there's a solid argument that it makes sense to make sure that inmates being released have teeth because they need to go get jobs and that impacts recidivism rates. So at the least there's a benefit there. Carrie Blakinger covers prisons and the death penalty for the Houston Chronicle. We'll link to her latest at TexasStandard.org. Carrie, thanks again for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Let's find out what Texans are talking about on this Wednesday with our social media editor, Mr. Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. A tenacious meeting in the White House yesterday where President Trump said he would be proud of a government shutdown if it meant funding for his promised border wall, still the talk of politics watchers online. That combative meeting with Democratic leaders Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi generating a lot of talk on our Facebook page. There, James Art Axum says, if I found myself trying to negotiate with someone behaving that way, the way Trump acted, I would walk out before he took his next breath. And 
And as for the disagreement at hand, Alan Bozeman asks, what happens to Mexico, or what happened rather, to Mexico paying for this Trump wall? If his base doesn't have the backbone to hold him accountable, I guess it will fall to the newly elected House. And this is interesting regarding the prospect of a partial government shutdown. Brad Emmons writes, as is always the case, Furloughed workers are ultimately paid retroactively for days they didn't work and aren't expected to make up. Pretty sweet gig, this shutdown stuff. Definitely a story we're watching. And then a bit of breaking news I should add here, David, speaking of politics. Mm -hmm. On social media today, former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro announced the launch of an exploratory committee for the presidency as he inches closer to a 2020 run. I'm going to have more reactions to that later in the show. Yeah, uh, we would love to hear what you think of that. I think uh, another uh, certain uh, congressman, former, soon-to-be former congressman, Mm -hmm. may have his eyes on a similar run. Yeah, from Texas as well. Um, We'll have something to say. We'd love to hear what you've got to say. Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Along the Texas Gulf Coast, officials have been getting an earful from residents fearful of what a plan to protect the petroleum industry from a storm catastrophe might mean for property valuations and the possibility of the state using eminent domain to seize land. This plan's been years in the making, but after Hurricane Harvey, the push is on to build a massive coastal barrier. But as Houston Public Media's Travis Bubenick reports, it's not just local residents, but the billions needed to pay for this barrier, creating what you might call a uh, perfect storm. Head just a few minutes east from downtown Houston's fancy restaurants and cocktail bars, and you'll find yourself where I'm at right now, a gritty, heavily industrial side of the city filled with refineries and smokestacks. From here, you can watch tugboats push barges up and down the Houston ship channel, the beating economic heart of the whole region. And it's all at risk of disastrous flooding, given the right hurricane in the right spot. It's kind of like we've dodged the bullet. Larry Dunbar is with Rice University's Severe Storm Prediction, Education, and Evacuation from Disasters Center. The Speed Center, as they call it, has been looking at how to build something to protect the coast for years. Dunbar says Hurricane Ike, which hit the region in 2008, could have been a lot worse. Had Ike made landfall where it was projected to make landfall, we would have seen three to five feet more water in the ship channel. That would have made some people kind of wake up. A big enough storm could shut down Houston's industry, causing widespread fuel supply disruptions and environmental contamination. That's in part why Texas and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers want to build more than 50 miles of levees and flood walls on the coast, along with huge storm surge gates. Dunbar says it's not enough, especially after Hurricane Harvey's historic rainfall here last year. We are now seemingly getting bigger hurricanes than we've had before, more frequently. You know, we know we're getting 30 40, 50 plus inches of rain. His team is proposing even further protections. The plan's in its early stages, and you can bet there'll be plenty of debate. We hope it's something that's good for everyone and not just the refineries and the plants. Jeff Antonelli owns the Shrimp and Stuff restaurant in Galveston, an hour south of Houston, where the barriers would be built. He worries how that would impact tourism and life in general. Still, after Ike, he thought hard about his future and decided... 
the coast needs some kind of defense. Is this a place where my kids and their grandkids are going to, is it still going to be here if we get hit by these, you know, because whether you believe in climate change or not, I mean, this is a fact that, that I've lived. Concrete infrastructure is not this surefire way that we're going to have protection. Jordan Maka is with Bayou City Waterkeeper, one of a few local environmental groups that agree the region needs protecting, but worry the Army Corps is trying to build its way out of the problem. We have not really seen anything that is a true comparison to what they're proposing. The Netherlands has built huge storm surge gates before, but the Texas project would likely be bigger. Maka's group wants more details on how the gates in the water would affect things like oysters, shrimp, and fish. Particularly in an area that relies so heavily on these ecosystem resources for its livelihood, we shouldn't be flippant to say, yes, we know that we need protection and we'll take whatever we can get. The plan does include ecosystem restoration projects like improving beaches and sand dunes to make the coast more naturally storm resistant. And the Army Corps says there's room for modifying the plan. Everything from the scale and the design of the barriers to the way environmental impacts are managed could still change. The project is estimated to cost around $32 billion. One big challenge, convincing Congress to approve that. In Houston, I'm Travis Bubinick. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. At Christmas time each year, we often hear stories about great gifts, the wise men bringing gifts to the manger, for instance. Of course, St. Nick's annual trek to chimneys all over the world, and there's the Sharper Image Catalog. All this has reminded our commentator, W.F. Strong, of a certain gift to Texas long ago. You may not know the name D.H. Snyder, but you will certainly recognize his influences on Texas history. Like many young men of his time in the 1850s, he was already out and about making his mark in the world when he was just 22. He was hauling apples from Missouri and selling them in Texas. From apples, he went to trading horses and from horses to cattle. He once walked 100 miles from Round Rock to San Antonio to buy horses. He had only $200 to spend, and someone asked him why he didn't just buy a horse in Round Rock and ride to San Antonio, and his answer was, more horses. The horse market was much cheaper in San Antonio, and his money would go further, so he walked. His great-grandson, Charles Snyder, told me that D.H.'s trading mantra was always this, you make your profit when you buy, not when you sell. He drove cattle to Kansas to Colorado and was the first to drive cattle from Texas to Wyoming and Texas to Idaho. He was one of the first to drive cattle 90 miles from the Conchal to the Pecos without water in between. Beforehand, he rested the herd for a few days, watered them well, and even skipped slaughtering the calves, as was customary because it was believed they slowed the herd. Then he drove them all day and all night for 70 hours straight until he reached the Pecos. The calves did just fine. The mamas did better, too, having their babies with them. Sound familiar? Woodrow and Gus were inspired by cattlemen like Snyder and Goodnight to make a similar run in Lonesome Dove a hundred years later. All the ranchers knew that if you wanted your cattle delivered to market on the day promised, without losses, without fail, D.H. Snyder was your man. So where's the gift, you ask? Well, we're coming to it. Snyder got rich driving cattle and became a successful rancher himself with hundreds of thousands of acres of land in his operations. 
He settled in Georgetown along with his brother and business partner, John Wesley Snyder. D.H. gave land for the building of the first Methodist church, which is still there. John gave land for the high school. They both endowed Southwestern University with multiple generous gifts over the years, though neither went to college. D.H. served on the board for 27 years and gave the fledgling university the benefit of his business sense. He served as the treasurer for 22 years, free of charge, giving the arguably oldest university in Texas the solid financial footing it needed to become the world-class university it is today. His money went from cattle to chemistry and composition, from ranching to research. Charles Snyder, D.H.'s great-grandson, told me that D.H. lived to be 88. In his latter years, he lived in a modest home near the university. He became legally blind. But he lost his sight, not his vision. Not long before he died, someone asked D.H. if he regretted giving most of his money to the university, which forced him to live on a meager budget compared to the rich life he once enjoyed. He had no regrets at all. In fact, he said, I see that investment every day as the students pass by the house on their way to class. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. W.F. Strong, Fulbright Scholar, Professor of Culture and Communication at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. His stories from Texas are available at texasstandard.org on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are served. Best served, well done, with a side of salsa. Coming up on 29 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time, we got the Texas Roundup just around the corner. Stick around, won't you? Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. It's well known that Texas has the highest uninsured rate in the country, but a new study wanted to take a closer look at exactly who these 4.7 million Texans are. Elena Marks is the president and CEO of the Episcopal Health Foundation, which released the report today. She says about two-thirds of Texans who don't have health coverage are part of working families. And we wanted to call attention to that fact because there is often this misconception that uh, people who are uninsured are somehow lazy or not doing what it is that they should be doing to care for themselves and their families. And what this data show is that the vast majority of these people are in working families. They're just working for employers who don't provide insurance, Mark says. The report also found that 61% of Texans without health insurance are Hispanic, while 24% are white and 10% are black. 
Another survey shows Texas school districts are feeling the effect of state funding cuts to pre-kindergarten programs. Back in 2017, the state legislature eliminated roughly $150 million in funding. And our survey of school districts found that the legislature's decision hurt students in a lot of ways and hurt districts in a lot of ways. That's David Fagan with Texans Care for Children. The advocacy group surveyed 95 school districts in 49 counties, accounting for two of every five kids enrolled in pre-K in the state. He says 62 percent of those districts said the loss of pre-K funding negatively impacted their programs at least a moderate amount. While 38 percent said the cuts had a lot or a great deal of impact. Some of the challenges they faced include needing to reduce spending on instructional coaching and staff compensation as well as layoffs. And Fagan explains these negative effects were felt beyond pre-K. And we also found that these cuts impacted programs outside of pre-K because those uh, funding streams were tapped to fill the gaps that had been left in pre-K. So we saw uh, student-to-teacher ratios increase in uh, the K-12 through side as well. Fagan says districts are largely committed to providing high-quality full-day pre-K, and almost 80% would if the state helped fund it. More than two decades after her untimely death, Tejano superstar Selena Quintanilla Perez lives on in the hearts of fans the world over, and her legacy will now live on in a new series on Netflix. Yesterday, the streaming giant released a trailer for the upcoming original show to be called Selena the Series. Although no casting decisions have been announced, the Quintanilla family will serve as the show's executive producers. The program is described as a coming-of-age story following the life of Selena, who was tragically killed in 1995 by the president of her fan club. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at ftlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. The story of how Frank Vickers of Bastrop, Texas, got kicked out of his home sounds a bit like the stuff of fiction. He had rented the same property from the same landlord for almost a decade, but in September, Vickers was on his couch watching Jeopardy when a knock at the door came. And before he could even get up, a Bastrop County Sheriff's deputy was standing in his living room evicting him. This story contains a lot of drama, and it includes an elected official, his attorney daughter, and the sheriff's departments of two Texas counties. For more, we turn to Jody Barr. He is part of Austin KXAN-TV's investigative team. They uncovered this story. Jody Barr, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you very much for having us. Now, how does Frank Vickers end up getting kicked out of the house he rented for almost a decade? Well, he got a visit from a Bastrop County deputy. Uh The deputy comes into the house and says, you need to leave. The house has been sold. Uh, Vickers did not leave that night. Then he got a call the next day from Bastrop County Commissioner Bubba Snowden. He didn't answer the call, but it went to voicemail, and Uh Snowden left a message that says, make it easier on both of us. This house has been sold. I'm going to put a sign up in your yard basically get out. You've got the one of the most powerful elected officials in your county and an officer of the law with a gun and a badge telling you to do something. He did it. Now, wait. Uh, so uh, Bubba uh, Snowden, he says, make it easier on both of us. Was it? Was, did he own the property or something or what? No, it's actually his daughter. We were all confused as to how Bubba Snowden's daughter ended up with this house. Uh-huh. The county had no record of a sale at that point. So Vickers is very confused as to why a deputy's at his house, who called the deputy over, and then he gets a call from 
a county commissioner, a county commissioner, an elected official, the next day saying, "Get out." Who doesn't even have a claim to this property? Yes, and that was only found out uh, a few weeks into our investigation of trying to figure out what is going on here. We were going through every office that would have any public record that would have any hand in selling a house. And then the day we ended our research and visited all of these county offices, up pops a sheriff's deed in the county clerk's office. That's pretty, uh, uh, what, coincidental, I think, is the, the, the word that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could call it coincidental. Coincidental. Does it all seem to be on the up and up? Is the, is the deed uh, look square and fair or what? Well, the deed actually came about the landowner, Francine Langford, who actually owned the property. Mm -hmm. She has another property in Lee County, the neighboring county. There was a fence installed on that property, and the, the bill wasn't paid. So there was a judgment rendered against Miss Langford in Lee County. Had nothing to do with the Bastrop County home. What ended up happening was Miss Langford was sued by this fence company in Lee County. Her attorney was a woman by the name of Rosanna Abreu. So we fast forward to the seizure of the property in Bastrop County. Mm -hmm. The constable's name there is Sal Abreu, husband and wife. Mm -hmm. So we start getting into the murky waters here that is this Bastrop County situation. Boy, this is really interesting. So how did the Bastrop County property end up in the hands of Tracy Ortiz? Well, there is a document known as a writ of execution, mm -hmm. and that is Lee County giving this constable in Bastrop County, Mr. Abreu, the authority to seize property that belongs to this landowner. The date that the constable says that he got the actual document was actually created months before the document existed. The landowner's attorney says that this is a fraudulent document. He carries that document to a Lee County judge last month, and the judge struck it down uh, at, that, at that hearing, saying he found it to be a fraudulent document, that there's no way the constable had this document in hand two months before it even existed. Where does this leave Frank Vickers? Well, today that sign that the commissioner promised he'd put up is still there. There's a lawsuit filed by Vickers and his landlord and their attorney. They want this property back first. They're also suing over a wrongful eviction because the justice of the peace who issues eviction notices told Mr. Vickers they've never had an eviction notice in his name or for that address. You can't take property when it's not properly noticed and it's property that this landowner had a homestead exemption on. She had a loan against this property, so there was a bank with the first claim. So it, it appears the law should have worked if the law was followed. Is it, is it common for people to lose property due to a lien? Yeah, we found that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it happens from time to time if it's not a homestead property. If the process was followed, this likely would not have happened. I'm very interested to see if we could ever answer the why. Why this piece of property? Why the constable and his attorney wife? Why were they interested in this? Mm -hmm. How did they know about it? A lot of questions. A lot of questions. And uh, still looking for answers. Jody Barr is. He's part of Austin KXAN's investigative team. They've uncovered this story of how Frank Vickers came to lose his home. Jody, thanks so much. We look forward to hearing updates. Thank you very much, Dave. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at softwareaspromised.com.
www.thepetshop.com. It's the Texas Standard. You've seen them cropping up at strip malls and in and around new housing developments everywhere, talking about freestanding emergency rooms. Now state lawmakers are promising a crackdown on these ERs after a study showing many failing to comply with state disclosure laws. Texas Public Radio's Ryan Poppy explains. The American Association of Retired Persons, or AARP, surveyed Texas's 213 freestanding emergency rooms in 2018. Their report, released this week, shows 30% of freestanding ERs violated the state's disclosure laws, which require facilities' websites inform patients about their medical resources and their fee structures. Blake Hudson, Associate State Director for AARP Texas, reported to the Texas Senate Committee on Business and Commerce that his group also found that 77% of these freestanding ERs listed misleading insurance information on their website. Saying, we accept Blue Cross, or we take Humana, or we'll honor your insurance. They're using that language when they're out of network. It's really frustrating for consumers here when they encounter this kind of misinformation. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission oversees enforcement of state disclosure laws passed by the 2017 legislature. State Senator Kelly Hancock and other committee members met with commission officials after the hearing. And let them know that we didn't just pass legislation in order to have words on a sheet of paper, but to help patients and to resolve these conflicts that occur where the patient gets stuck in the middle. The commission did not respond to TPR's request for comment. The Texas House is also addressing the freestanding ER issue. State Representative Tom Oliverson from Harris County authored the 2017 Consumer Protection Bill that requires facilities post their facility fees and insurance information. Oliverson said he plans to introduce legislation this session that would require freestanding ERs clarify on their website which insurance plans would be considered in and out of network at their particular facility. In Austin, I'm Ryan Poppy. Winter break on the horizon, safe to say most students looking forward to some time off. For teachers, it'll also be a time to prep for next year and perhaps reflect on what they've learned from the weeks just past. All this month, we're sharing stories from teachers about what my students taught me. This is produced in partnership with the Teacher Project at Columbia Journalism School. Today, Teacher Project fellow Sharon Luria takes us inside a second-grade classroom at Presidential Meadows outside Austin, where one young student's reputation preceded him. Sandy Lyons had heard about Dakeondrick Whitley a long time before he set foot in her second grade classroom. I had heard that he was a troublemaker, that he was immature, that he had temper tantrums if he didn't get to have his way. And he lived up to his reputation. One day we were doing an art project and he was, I think, making Superman, if I remember correctly. And he couldn't get it to look just exactly right the way he wanted it to. So he just had, like, this huge meltdown, ripping it up and putting it, cramming it into his desk. Like, I'd get mad in an instant. Dakeondrick is 17 now. I had a really bad habit of talking back. Like, I thought I knew everything. So if a teacher would try and tell me something, I'd probably throw it back in their face for no reason. But there was a lot about Dakeondrick that his kindergarten and first grade teachers hadn't told Miss Lyons. Like how bright he was. He would bring newspapers to class and debate the student teacher about Obama versus McCain. 
every morning he would come in and tell me, Miss Lyons, I learned to spell a new word. And his words were always just real off-the-wall kinds of words. And I'd always say, where did you learn that? I'd come with these, you know, these, these spelling words, and I'd be like, I want them to think that, you know, I'm this, I'm smart. So I always wanted them to look at me a certain way and just be different. Miss Lyons realized that Dakeyondrick was acting out so much partly because he was bored. Most second graders were still doing things like 7 plus 3 is 10 and uh, 13 minus 3 is 10. Well, his, he got to where he would always do numbers in thousands. So she started giving him harder material. I think it made him feel special to enjoy doing the work when it was his own thing. And everybody knew that he did his own thing, especially during math time. But Dakeyondrick didn't always want harder material. Even though he was so smart, he had his insecurities. So if he couldn't do something perfectly, he'd rather not do it at all. He'd get angry when he had to actually work. He remembers an incident right around winter break when he got so furious that he wrote, I hate you, Miss Lyons, all over his folder. I remember her actually looking pretty sad when she saw that, oh, I feel so bad. Why did I do that? Miss Lyons remembers that day, too. Well, of course you feel defeated. I felt like I went above and beyond and wanted him to be successful so badly. So if ever he would have little breakdowns, I felt like that a lot of the stuff I had accomplished hadn't really been that much of an accomplishment. Despite her decades of teaching experience, Miss Lyons didn't know how to reach Dakeyondrick. It seemed like he was teetering on the edge of becoming a brilliant student or failing. There was something about him that kind of tugged at my heart. I, I just I really wanted to bridge over that gap. Even though I felt frustrated, I wanted to bridge that gap. So Miss Lyons kept trying. She bought Dakeyondrick advanced math books and found someone to teach him chess. They had long conversations about everything from politics to her pet dog. <laughs> he was such a funny little boy, and he had a mature sense of humor. And so he and I got to where we could kind of joke around with each other. And I think that that was kind of a, a hand across the bridge. She made him help other students in math, too. She, she was like, you need, to, you need to use what you have for good and help me out because these students can't do it alone. You know, not everyone is like you. And that was one of the things why I had, like, anger issues because everyone wasn't like me. I didn't really see the, the things that I saw the same way. So she told me I had to go help other people because I could. But what really helped turn the tide was Miss Lyon's relationship with Dakeyondrick's mother. They had long talks at parent-teacher conferences and over the phone. Miss Lyons even visited the family's house. My mom, she was like, oh, that teacher really cares about you. And I was like, oh, maybe she does. It's not like I went to school and it happened like overnight, but I kind of started to realize the things my mom was saying was true. Dakeyondrick's anger gradually cooled down. He took a little convincing to be able to try sometimes. But then after repeated conversations, he could get to where he would look at me and smile like, I know what you're going to say. He kind of put his hand on his forehead. I know what you're going to tell me. I know. 
Over the years that followed, Dakiandra grew into a confident student, the first in his family bound for college. For Miss Lyons, he served as a reminder to always search for the hidden gifts of her students. Well, I was always looking for someone else who had that glow that Dakiandra had. He left a certain impression on me that I will carry with me forever. Miss Lyons retired three years ago after 40 years of teaching. Dakiandrick is a senior in high school. His top choice for college is MIT. He says he'd never dream so big if it weren't for Miss Lyons, the first teacher to make him realize that he was capable of so much more. For the Texas Standard, I'm Sharon Luria in Austin. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. A U.S. senator says that after a decade of progress, the rate of uninsured U.S. children is now on the rise. Is that accurate? Back with us to shake out the facts, Gardner Selby, on behalf of the PolitiFact Texas Fact-Checking Project, based at the Austin American Statesman. Mr. Selby, good to see you again, sir. Good to see you. All right, so who exactly said this and where and all that? Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, she's a Democrat, she made this claim in a December tweet. I'm going to read it to you. All right. After a decade of progress, the rate of uninsured children is now rising. Hmm. That's what she said. Now, she called that troublesome and also said that every child, in her opinion, needs access to quality, affordable health care. Well, it would indeed be uh, troublesome if, if true. Uh, Texas historically ranks first, or at least close to first, in, in residents without health coverage, right? Yes. You and I have visited about this before, for instance, uh, about a finding that through 2013, Texas ranked first in the nation with 22% of residents lacking health yeah. coverage. Yeah, I, I remember when we talked about that. Uh, but the senator spoke in her tweet to the share of uninsured children escalating, and she's also talking about nationally, right? I mean, how did she get to that finding? PolitiFact's John Greenberg, the reporter on this one, turned to a report put out by the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. Now, mm -hmm. researchers there drew on U.S. Census Bureau survey results to conclude that the number of children without insurance in the country increased by about 276,000 okay. from 2016 to 2017. Okay, so a one-year change, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty large. Um, but we're talking about raw numbers here. What about the share of children without coverage? The researchers calculated this. The fraction of uninsured kids inched up from 4.7% uh -huh. to 5%. Now, in contrast, that share had been dropping for at least the previous three years and mostly dropping for eight years. Oh. The portion of uninsured kids, for instance, in 2013, nationally, 7.5%. Uh -huh. 2008, 10.5%. Oh, okay. Well, so anything more detailed come to light? John heard back from one of the researchers who said that for the first time in the years of analyzing such figures, increases in uninsured had occurred all over the country. Which would, of course, include Texas. It includes Texas. Yeah. Now, Texas alone accounted for about a fifth of all the uninsured children really? in the country. A fifth. One fifth. I don't think that's too surprising. I think it's in line with what we've, we've heard before. A lot of people live in Texas. Mm -hmm. The Texas uninsurance rate of 10.7% placed the state again... 
last in the nation. Or first in uninsured, I guess. First in uninsured, that's right. View this. Put another way, the number of uninsured kids in Texas went up by, in, just in the one year, 2006, 2017, by 83,000 children. Wow. So did the research say why more children came to lack insurance? There's speculation in the uh, fact check that one factor was resistance in President Donald Trump's administration to supporting the Obamacare law put in place, of course, on Barack Obama's watch. I'm wondering about that. Any, uh, any other important wrinkles to consider here? Of course. There's a couple. One researcher cautioned both that it's too early to be declaring that progress has reversed in that we're only looking at one year of data, one year-to-year change. Oh, right, right, right. And we don't yet have numbers for 2018. Okay. Also, Klobuchar's reference in that tweet to a decade of progress kind of overstrides the available estimates. Mm -hmm. The survey results don't even cover a full decade. Okay, so uh, we pull back. How does the senator's claim come out on the PolitiFact Truth-O-Meter? Given those caveats I just shared, editors reached the rating of mostly true. Oh, you'd say that. Yeah, uh-huh. not true. There hadn't been a decade of progress, and we don't know current year results. Right. Regardless, there was a national bump up in uninsured children between 2016 and 2017, both raw numbers and percentage. Yeah, mostly true is a U.S. senator's claim that the number of uninsured kids is on the rise. That ruling by the fact checkers at PolitiFact. Gardner Selby is with PolitiFact Texas. Gardner. Good to see you, and we will see you next week. You bet. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Hello there, Wells. Hello there, David. Uh, Wells Dunbar is our social media editor here at the Texas Standard, and uh, uh, what is uh, uh, what, what's what's Tweetface talking about today? <laughs> well, here's an update to a story we've been following. This is a good one. I like this one. The holiday season is here, but the 2,300 plus migrant youth being held at the Tornillo Tent City Detention Center in El Paso won't be home for Christmas. And while the public is prohibited from donating gifts to the children housed mm-hmm. there, a state senator from El Paso launched a program to show the kids they haven't been forgotten. Democrat Jose Rodriguez worked out an agreement with federal immigration authorities to donate soccer balls to the mm-hmm. children housed there at the Tent uh, City facility in Tornillo right outside of El Paso. Right. And so he set up a link on Amazon where people could go and buy a ball, which would then reach the kids through his office. Oh. Well, as of this morning, they've reached their goal of 2,400 soccer balls. Have mercy. Yeah, and on Twitter, there's some incredible photos of the soccer balls just absolutely taking over the senator's <laughs> yeah. office, just huge, huge ball uh, bags of them. And while they've reached their goal, they still need uh, help. This is a really interesting part here. His office says they need help inflating the hundreds of balls oh, they've received. So if you're that. in El Paso, you can yeah. uh, stop by uh, Jose Rodriguez's office there and, uh, <laughs> and lend your lungs to the effort there. <laughs> Folks are talking about this one on social media. Oscar Silva says, a soccer ball can't fix our broken immigration system or bring justice for the children sequestered in Tornillo, but we hope this small gesture helps a child smile this holiday, if only for a brief moment. And also seeing a lot of reactions like this one out there, David, from uh, Judy Cummings. She says, we need to give them their freedom as a gift for Christmas. Hmm. So Yeah, very uh, very uh, interesting uh, comments from uh, listeners. Uh, you mentioned something mm-hmm. when last we spoke. 
Yes. Uh, about uh, some breaking news, bit of breaking news. Yeah. Uh, Julian Castro. Julian Castro, yeah, the former San Antonio mayor, former uh, housing and urban development uh, secretary there. Yeah, he announced the launch of an exploratory committee for the presidency. I guess this is the thing you do when you're not running for the presidency, but you want to start not raising money. For the presidency. <laughs> for uh-huh. the, you wanna, not running. You're thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he released this video on YouTube. He put it up on Twitter, Facebook. He says he will announce a final decision in January. So, you know, but the takes are already rolling in. Matt Weiss on our Facebook page says it's probably smarter for the DNC to mount a candidate from a swing state. Beto proved that Texas will still vote GOP even when the GOP candidate is widely disliked mm-hmm. by some in his own party. Mm. And speaking of that word, the B word, Tracy Carnley McLean says, we'll see. I'm waiting to hear what Beto is going to do. I think a lot of folks are waiting with waiting. bated breath to I sort mean, of see what's going to happen. Here. Is there, I mean, is there any doubt? It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Stephen Young over at the Dallas Observer wrote up something that was published this morning. Uh, I mean, you could say that he was being prescient, but mm-hmm. this one, I mean, this is like the Mack yeah, truck coming ex- through the, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, what he's, he points out that if Julian Castro is uh, given every indication, he plans to to try for that 2020 nomination. And of course, we've got Beto O'Rourke as well. And, you know, there was that straw poll that you mentioned from mm. MoveOn.org. Right, of Democratic voters. Right. Had, Beto uh, topped the field. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know where, you, you know where Julian was in this uh, uh, he wasn't in the top three. Uh, he was not in the top 16. Uh, he came in 17th with just 0.48% support. But uh, what, uh, what what Stephen Young is arguing here is uh, that this fight between O'Rourke and, mm-hmm. and Castro could become the latest stand-in for a, a progressives' a war over, you know, uh, Sanders and, and, and Hillary Clinton. Progressives' you know, and, interests, uh, that, et that, that kind of thing. And Texans will have a front-row seat. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. We'd love to know what you think at Texas Standard. Wells will be back tomorrow. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks again. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare. The Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. PRI Public Radio International.